Would you pray with me? Father, we bow. And God, as we enter into a new section of the Gospel of Matthew, God, a section that that focuses on the healing ministry of Christ, Lord. God, I just want to come to you this morning on behalf of so many gathered here today and as so many who are unable to gather, who are watching online not out of choice, but out of necessity. God, who, in the sound of my voice in this moment, are struggling greatly with, with sickness, with illness, with disease, the battle with fear, the battle with pain is very real. And so God, I lift up brothers and sisters this morning who the subject of healing is very close to home. And God, I pray that you would have your hand upon them, that you would grant them strength, God, that you would grant them peace, that God, they would glorify you in every moment, in every challenge. And God, we ask humbly of you, Lord, that you would bring healing upon them. God, would you restore them, meet their every need by your grace, and show yourself powerfully to be the God who heals in their lives. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I'd ask you to open up this morning to the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. First book of the New Testament. It should be about three-fourths of the way through your copy of God's Word. As you turn there, we're picking back up. We've been walking through the, the Gospel of Matthew, and we've made it through the first seven chapters and we pick up now and we'll over the between now and Christmas walk through chapters 8, 9, and 10. You might remember if you were with us in the last year, you might remember that in Matthew 4.23 we read a statement that's kind of a summary statement of Jesus' ministry and we learn of three aspects of his ministry in this statement. It reads, and, and he went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so we see that these three activities we talked about when we covered this passage, we talked about these three activities characterized Jesus' ministry, that it was a ministry of teaching, a ministry of healing, and a ministry of preaching. And so we talked about that. The interesting thing is that, that Matthew is very intentional in the way he lays out his gospel. And so after saying that in Matthew 4.23, he goes right into the Sermon on the Mount and shares what Jesus did in teaching the Sermon on the Mount. So you read in, in chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus taught his disciples. So chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew characterize his teaching ministry. Now in Matthew uh, 8 and 9, we will look at a focused account of Jesus' healing ministry. And we will find account after account after account of the healings of Christ and then when we come to chapter 10, we will see Jesus sending out the 12 to preach the gospel. And so we have these three activities that characterize his ministry that we see in Matthew 5 through 7, and then chapters 8 and 9, and then chapter 10. Chapters 8 and 9, when we think about the healing ministry of Christ, is broken up into three segments, and each one of these segments have three different healings that Matthew shares with us, and he shares these in an intentional way. I believe it necessary with the context of our day, with everything that goes on, the importance of, of, of healing and the physical ailments we have before us, and even our own cultural setting, that as we think about chapters 8 and 9, we should begin our time in the chapters, and specifically our time in chapter 8, 1 through 17 today, considering what would be the biblical teaching on healing. What's the biblical teaching on healing? The reason that we need to start there is simply because of, of things like the health and wealth gospel of our day. The, this movement that has brought great, um, great confusion to many. It's a movement that is unbiblical. It's a movement that is very manipulative. And it's one that has left a bitter taste in many people's li uh, lives and, and mouths, rightfully so, over the whole idea of healing. 
So it means that with this as our context, it's not uncommon for us to hear in our day, whether it's on TV or in pulpits around our land, ministers claiming healing faith before it happens as though God is required to do it if they claim it. Right? We hear this commonly. We hear and see televangelists who promise healing upon receiving a monetary gift. If you give me this, you will be blessed and healing of the Lord will be upon you. You've seen, probably, I'm assuming, or you're aware of healing services in which people all around are left scattered on the floor and slain in the spirit and healed. If you read and do research in that, it's not always the case and oftentimes is not the case. You pass healing rooms, you hear all sorts of talk of the health and the wealth gospel. But then you also have our habit here at Grace. At Grace, every Wednesday, we send out a prayer sheet. And on that prayer sheet is name after name after name and situation after situation of people who are sick and struggling with physical ailments. And we gather every Wednesday night and we pray for these people and other needs, spiritual needs and, and various needs as well. But we pray for the physical needs of our loved ones, those amongst us. We just prayed, as a matter of fact, before the sermon. We prayed for those of you who are struggling with sickness and disease and illness. We care about that. We pray about it. As a church, we've gathered around some of you in, in particular in special ways and in moments in which you're going through a difficult time, whether that's a time when you're going in surgery, one of the pastors, if we can, we try to meet with you and pray for you in that moment. We try to see you and visit you in the hospital. There have been moments where the church has come together and gathered around some of you, particularly to pray for God's healing as you go through very, very difficult days. We go to the hospital, we pray for healing. In the mornings, in my prayer time, I pray for those of you that I know of that are struggling and have physical ailments. We want to see God heal. So if we have all of this going on, the question is, what is a biblical view of healing? What is a biblical view of healing? I want to give you just seven points briefly, and then we'll get into our text. We have a lot of ground to cover, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think this is important for us. Seven points, seven descriptions of a biblical view of healing. Number one, sickness and death are a result of sin. So first we need to understand sickness and death are a result of sin. We see this in Romans 8, 20 to 22. You can read that later. And what we learn there is that creation is marred by sin. It's not ruined by sin, but it is indeed marred by sin. And what that means is that sickness is always a result of sin in general. Okay, It's always a result of sin in general. It's sometimes a result of specific sin in our life. Okay? To, to say that another way, sickness and death are sometimes the result of our own sin, but they're not always the result of our own sin. It's always the result of sin in general, though. Some, some references, and I'll, I'll send these out on Facebook if you don't get all these, but sometimes sickness and death are a result of our own sin. You might think of Second Chronicles 16, 11, and 12, the account of Asa, or you may think of the account of Jehoram in Second Chronicles 21. Both of those are recent readings in your daily readings. Or in Acts 12, 21 to 23, where we read of Herod being, uh, meeting death because he did not glorify the Lord. Or perhaps in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 30, where we learn and, and Paul makes reference to some being ill and sick because of taking the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. Uh, but we know that sickness and death are not always a result of our own specific sin. And you can look at John 9, 1 to 3 as a, a brief example of that. That it was not due to the, the blind man's parents or his own sin that he was born blind. He was just born blind, and ultimately it was for God's glory in that instance. And so it's not always a result of our own sin. So the first one, sickness and death are a result of sin. Always in general, not always specific, but sometimes specifically. Number two, the second thing is that healing comes by God's power, not by our faith. Healing comes by God's power, not by our faith, okay? So if you think, one of the classic example of this is John 5, 1 to 17, the, the healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda. When, when he heals him, that, that man didn't even know who Jesus was. He wasn't coming about seeking Jesus. He wasn't seeking healing. Jesus came to him and brought healing to him. So it wasn't based on his faith. It was purely of God's will. It was purely of something that Christ wanted to do. 
In contrast to that, we have, and today we'll look at him, we have the centurion who we'll look at in a few moments who is, is shown to have exemplary faith. And it's his faith is said that is, is, is exemplified and, and brought about healing. So to say that it's based on God's power, not our faith, is not to say, you need to hear this, it's not to say that faith is unimportant. It's not to say that. We know that faith is important. We learn and we hear statements in, in like Hebrews eleven six that without faith it's impossible to please God. We, we understand from James 5.15 that, that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. But what we need to understand is just as the, the faith that saves, saves because it is in Jesus, it's the same. The faith that heals, heals because it is Christ. It's not according to our faith. It's according to Christ. Now, what this means practically for those of you who are struggling through sickness and praying for healing is this, is that a lack of healing in your life or someone else's is not due to your weak faith. So it's not an instance where you go, oh, I don't have strong enough faith. If I just had stronger faith, Jesus would heal me. If I had faith as strong as his, I would be healed. That's not what we see in Scripture. It's not what we see. What we need to understand is that, that faith does not guarantee healing, okay? Faith does not guarantee healing, but it is necessary for the one who comes to Jesus seeking help for healing. So to come before him without any faith would make no sense, right? It's not something that we just check a box and say, okay, I asked and I'll do it, right? Faith is important, but it is not what heals. Christ brings healing. Number three, Scripture speaks of both physical and spiritual healing. So Scripture speaks of both physical and spiritual healing. An example of physical healing is found in Psalm 41, 3 to 4. It says, The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I've sinned against you. He's praying for physical healing there. Other references, Psalm 103, 2 to 3, Matthew 10, 1, and verse 8, James 5, 13 to 16, all of these reference physical healing of the Lord. And this is just a few. So it's right, it's good that we would pray for physical healing. But the scriptures also speak of spiritual healing in places like Psalm 147, 3, Isaiah 53, 5, Jeremiah 17, 14, all speak of spiritual healing. Or 1 Peter 2, 24, where we read this, it says that, um, talking about Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's talking about the wounds of Christ bringing healing to us spiritually. So scripture speaks of both physical and spiritual healing in it. The fourth thing, fourth point of a biblical view of healing is that it is good and right to pray for physical healing. It's good and right to pray for physical healing. It's something that we should do. James 5, 13 to 16 would be an example of that, a reference to that. We also might remember Exodus 15, 26, where the Lord reveals himself as the Lord your healer, Yahweh Rophe, the Lord who is your healer. So we're instructed in James, and we see examples of it in the Bible, to pray for healing. Now, the thing we need to understand there is that as we do, we trust God's timing, God's plan, God's will as we pray for him to heal. So what this means practically, again, is that it means that as we pray for healing, it means that some will have a miraculous removal of cancer or whatever ailment it is and be healed. But it means for others, it may be a very long road and battle through chemo. For some, it may mean healing in this life, whether tomorrow or next year. And for others, it means healing in glory before the Lord. We trust God's will. We trust God's timing. As we trust him, we pray for healing and we hope for his healing to come upon us. The fifth point is that physical healing is not the end goal. Physical healing is not the end goal. God's glory is. God's glory is. Now, I, I, I know I, need, I have to be careful in what I'm about to say. I understand that. Last week's sermon on idolatry, I believe, is connected here with what we get into when we think about healing. 
we need to understand that idolatry is not just pertaining to these bad things in life, these things that are unbiblical. We need to understand that idolatry can also include something like our physical health, that we would so elevate our physical health that if we do not get physical health, we will rebel against God, we will cast him away, we will step away from him, we will not worship him. When that's the case, then you understand that you have put your physical health in a place of idolatry where it is the end goal. You understand that? Now, I, I know I have to say that carefully because in this moment in my life, I'm not going through any kind of physical ailment that I know of. We've been there as a family. We've walked through that. We have loved ones that are, and some of you are. But we need to understand that in the midst of that, God's glory, God's glory is the end goal because we worship him. We worship him in the valleys. We worship him in the mountaintops. And our desire and longing is God's glory. I want to read to you something I came across that just had a, it just was very meaningful to me. It's a statement that James Montgomery Boyce shared with his church when he found out that he had a terminal cancer. He was fighting a fight that did not look like it would end well, and it didn't. When he finds this word out, so many were praying for him, they were gathering for prayer, and they're asking, how can we help? How can we help, Pastor? How can we help? This is what he shared with his church on May the 7th of 2000. He said, a number of you have asked what you can do, and it strikes me that what you can do, you are doing. This is a good congregation, and you do the right things. You're praying, certainly, and I've been assured of that by many people. And I know of many meetings that have been going on. A relevant question, I guess, then, when you pray is, pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, in their expertise, but they're not omniscient. They do make mistakes. And then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. Sometimes it does very well and sometimes not so well. And that's certainly a legitimate thing to pray for. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. God's glory is the ultimate goal. God's glory is the ultimate goal. The sixth point that we need to understand about a biblical view of healing is sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. We have many accounts of God healing. We're going to look at that in, in Matthew 8 and 9. We'll look at accounts of God healing people, Jesus healing people. But what we need to understand and we can't miss in the midst of these accounts is that Jesus did not heal everyone. He just didn't. He didn't heal everyone. In his ministry here, he moved on. Mark uh, 1, 32 to 38, you have the account where he was healing many who were sick. But there came a point as he's healing where he says to the disciples, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there. For that's why I came. And he left many who were unhealed. Jesus didn't heal everyone. Therefore, we have to trust the Lord. We have to trust that whether he heals today or not, that he is good, sovereign, and wise. That he is good, sovereign, and wise. He never changes. He is faithful. He is always good, sovereign, and wise. In the day of today, if you don't have an illness, in the day of tomorrow where you do, God is still good, sovereign, and wise in the midst. I would just make reference to two resources that I found helpful in this area. One is a book called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. He, he delineates that and articulates what I just said, that God is good, sovereign, and wise, and helps us understand that in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life. Another one that is an, an older, an older uh, work is All Things for Good by Thomas Watson. It's a Puritan work, and it looks at Romans 8, 28, and it explains how even evil, even bad things in our life, God uses for good. Two really good works to help you understand God's glory 
and God's timing, that God heals sometimes, sometimes he doesn't, but it's all for his purpose and his glory. Number seven, the final point that I would share before we get into our text. We are not taught to claim or speak healing upon someone. We're taught to ask God to bring healing. God is the only one with the power to authoritatively speak healing over something. We don't have that power. We call upon the name of the Lord. We ask God to bring healing. We seek him. But we cannot speak anything into existence. And that includes health. And if, that, if you go, well, why is that important? It's because there are those in our day, there is a movement in our day that believes that they speak creatively. That when they speak, things are created and they have the authority because God created, we then can create by speaking things into existence. That's not what we see in Scripture. So we think about a biblical view of healing. What does Scripture teach about healing then? The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus can heal today, but not that he must or always heal today. Okay, that's kind of a, a summary statement. The scriptural teaching is that Jesus can indeed heal today, but not that he must or always heal today. So the Christian understands this and trusts him and hopes in him. That's why we sing Christ, our hope in life and death. Because Christ is our hope and we trust him and we look to him. Our hope is found in him and we know that he will heal us whether it is tomorrow or whether it is in glory. We all are going to encounter some type of physical ailment in life. We are. We just will. But we all look forward to one day in which there will be no suffering. And what Revelation 21 4 says that in glory he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So we look forward in hope to our great God and being in his presence in glory. All right, let's look at Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 1 to 17. The word of the Lord says this. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. We start this section, we, we do well to note 
in each account of the healing, the leper, the centurion, and, and Peter's mother-in-law, we look at each one of these, we would do well to note both the, the power of Christ displayed in each one of these instances, and then also somewhat of an unlikely nature, unlikely aspect of each one of these healings. We, we need to recall, as we do, that you, you need to understand and remember that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He is kind of the most Jewish of the Gospels, and so he is making frequent use of Old Testament prophecy in his gospel to, to validate, to show, to prove, to point towards Jesus being the foretold Messiah. We also don't want to forget that as he does this, that Matthew is also making clear the mission of God is not just to Jews, but it's to Jews and Gentiles alike. And that's why you, you might remember when we began our study in Matthew, we talked about the wise men, that the wise men came from afar. They were non-Jews. They were Gentiles that came to worship the great king. But how does Matthew end? Matthew ends with the great commission that we are to go to all nations. So the book is bookended by the call and the, the point that Christ, that God, his mission is to the nations. It is not just for the Jews. And so Matthew is intentionally writing to Jews and teaching them of the ministry of Christ. So when we come to the cleansing of the leper, the first cleansing, the first healing here, and we wrap up Matthew 7, if you look up in 28 and 29, we, we see that Jesus is coming from the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when he finished these sayings, the, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them what? With one who had, as one who had authority. He was issuing authoritative teaching. And so what we see here is that the one who taught with authority is now going to heal with authority. So the authority, the authority that he declares and teaches, right, they, they saw, that they heard, now they are going to see it displayed. Authoritative teaching transitions into authoritative healing at this point. So in verse 2, we learn that a leper comes to Jesus. Now, a lot of you are probably familiar with leprosy as, as far as in the Scripture. It was a, a feared disease. It was one that, that would have covered a lot of ailments in that time. Some ailments that we understand now, some ailments that, 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 were, that were temporary, some that were permanent. And so in that time, it was a fearful thing. Some people might recover from it. Some people might not. But it, it covered a, kind of a plethora of, of health conditions. But regardless, it was seen as incurable. It was seen and understood that something that they couldn't, they couldn't help, they couldn't treat. And so when someone became a leper, when they had leprosy, they contracted leprosy, they were an outcast. They even had to walk around. They would warn someone that they were coming and shout out, leper, leper, if they came to pass someone. They were an outcast of society. We read of leprosy in Leviticus 13, verse 45 to 46. I want you just to hear two passages to kind of get a better idea of, of what it would mean, what it would be like to be a leper. In Leviticus 13, we read this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So away from the people. Away from the people. In Numbers 5, 1 to 4, we read this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous and has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so. They put them outside the camp. Can, can you relate to this? I know in some ways... Perhaps jokingly, perhaps not, you would say, well, well yeah, since 2020, we kind of get that, you know, you kind of felt like a leper when you were quarantined. But really, no, nothing compared to this. Outcasts of society, to be quarantined is not equivalent of leprosy. To be an outcast of society, to be removed, to be declared unclean, to have to warn, not for a matter of days, but perhaps for the rest of your life to be removed from your family, to be removed from your friends, your very social network to be cast away. This is a hard thing. And if you can just imagine what that would be like, something that you didn't do, just a disease that you contracted, you removed, outcast. 
we come to Leviticus 14, we read of the process for one coming back into society. It's a lengthy passage. You can read later the whole chapter, Leviticus 14, 1 to 32, tells of how one comes back into society if they're healed. It essentially, in summary, the first three verses tell us that a leper was to, if, if, if they were healed and they no longer had the marks and the, the, the marks of leprosy, they would come to the priest so that the priest could examine them and look and make sure that they weren't just lying. At that point, if the priest said, yeah, you, you don't have it anymore, then they would come and they would present an offering to the Lord. The rest of Leviticus 14 explains what that looks like, that they would present that offering to the Lord in, in an act of worship. And so in Matthew 8, a leper comes to Jesus. He kneels before him, and what does he say? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, I think we have a lot to learn from his request. What, what does he say? If you will. There, there's, a, there's a confident trust in Jesus' ability. If you will. It's not that I'm demanding. He doesn't come and demand of Jesus, you will heal me. He says, if you will. If it is according to your will, if it is what you desire, if it is in your plan, if you will, you can heal me. And so he submits to the will of God in that moment. He submits to him. He comes knowing that Jesus is not required to heal him. But as he submits, what does he say? You can. You can. If you will, you can heal me. Not only is he submitting to Christ in that moment, but he's declaring absolute confidence in his ability that Christ can indeed heal. God, if you will, you can heal me. I know that you can do it. And what is Jesus' response? What does Jesus do? Look at your text. What does he do? Jesus does what? He stretches out his hand and he touches him. He touches him. He stretches out and he touches and he makes two simple statements. I will be clean. And it says immediately he was healed. He's cleansed. We see here the, the power and the compassion of Christ. The power and the compassion. The power of Christ. In Psalm 33, 6, we read this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Right? Creation comes forth by the spoken word of God. Let it be, and it is. Right? And now we see the spoken word of Christ healing the man. He says, let it be, or, or I will, be clean. And the power of God ushers forth in healing the man. J.C. Ryle in his commentary noted a saying in his day that, that my faith can sleep sound on no other pillow than Christ's omnipotence. That we rest on his power, his strength, his might, his sovereignty. My faith rests on that. But we see also the compassion of Christ. He doesn't just step back and say, oh, you're a leper. Stay over there. I'll just speak it. No, the leper, the one who is untouchable, the one who is an outcast, Jesus touches. He touches the untouchable. The one who feels inhumane is now, sent, is now reminded of his humanity. He's touched by Christ. He is quick to show compassion to the leper. Listen, I, I, think, I think this just reminds us, if nothing else, it reminds us that we may, endure, may indeed have times where we feel ashamed or embarrassed by something going on in our life, whether it's our sin, whether it's a, a decision, a choice we made, whether it's something going on in our lives physically. But this is a physical reminder of a spiritual reality that Christ has compassion on his people, that he is the great healer of our infirmities and our iniquities. He is a compassionate and a powerful God. In verse 7, what does he tell the leper to do? Here comes the quiz to see if you've been paying attention. What does he tell the leper to do? Oh, not in verse 7. That's wrong in my notes. And you're like, I don't know. That's not about the leper. Um, am I paying attention? That's the quiz, right? All right. What does, he, what does he tell him to do in verse 4? All right. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to him, to them. Now, why did he tell the leper to do this? Huh? Worship? Response? Mirror Leviticus? 
Remember Leviticus 14? What did Leviticus 14 tell him to do? You go to who? You go to the priest, and the priest examines you. And then what? Then you offer an offering, a sacrifice to worship. And so Jesus says, hey, the law tells you to do this. Now go do it. Right? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Remember him saying that in the Sermon on the Mount? And so he tells the man, now go. Go do what is expected of you. Go what you are to do and do it. Show them that you've been cleansed. Show them what has happened. But he says, see that you say nothing to anyone. We'll come across this more and we'll talk about it more. Some people would call this the, the messianic secret. These times where in some of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where, where Jesus would say, don't tell anyone about this. Go and, and tell no one. And it's like, why would he say that? Well, the... I would say that most likely the reason he's saying this is because he doesn't want this huge following of people who come after him just for healing. This misunderstanding that people would say, oh, he brings healing. Well, that's, I just want the healing. We would see that in, in John 6. If you just jot down John 6, 15 and then verse 25 to 27, this is the account right after uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And, and we, we learn something there because right after that, um, the people want to make Jesus king because essentially in, in Kentucky terms, their bellies are full, right? They got a full stomach. And so they're like, hey, we want you as a king. I mean, if you can fill our stomachs with just a, a few fish and some bread, then we're good to go. You're the man, right? And Jesus, no, that's not why I want people following me. That's not what I, all I'm about. That my healings, my miracles, those serve as signs to show that I am the Messiah, and we want you to see and to, to look and see those things and look to Christ, not look to those things. And so go and tell no one. Don't, don't generate this big following. Say, hey, come get healed. Come get healed. Come get healed. As I would say, that's part of the error and problem of this whole among, I should say not, it's a little part, big part, of the big problem with the health and wealth movement is this idea that it elevates health and healing to a point where people would long for that and care nothing for Christ. We elevate healing to be the thing that we want. It's idolatry of healing is what it becomes. That people would follow Christ for his benefits rather than following Christ for Christ. You see, we follow Christ for Christ regardless of what the days hold. So Jesus heals the leper. The second healing that we come across is in verse 5 to 13, the healing of the centurion's servant. The healing of the centurion's servant. Now, the centurion comes, and, and we would see that it was kind of unlikely here where the leper was an unlikely healing because he was an outcast of society. He was one that was untouchable. Jesus touches him and heals him. In that moment, Jesus does not become unclean, but he cleanses the leper, right? Now we come to a centurion. Why would a centurion be unlikely? Well, remember, Matthew is writing to who? He's writing primarily to Jews, Right? And so now he comes, and as he writes to Jews, he writes to one or of one who is a, a Gentile. A centurion would be a, a Roman soldier, a Roman commander, who serves under the authority of the emperor, but then serves over approximately 100 soldiers, right? And so he is a, a Gentile. He is not a Jew. He would be seen as an outsider. But look at the humility we see right away from the, the, from the centurion. When Jesus says, I, I, I will come and heal him, what's the centurion say? I'm not worthy. <laughs> Lord, I, I am not worthy for you to come into my house. I mean, there's great humility there. He understands, he recognizes who Christ is, and he says, I, I, I am not worthy. I, I am just absolutely not worthy. Now, what we see here, we see the power of Jesus in this healing displayed in his authority to say it, and it happens. The centurion understood authority. Right, that's, what, that's what this means. When, when the centurion says, uh, I too, in verse 9, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and so on. Well, what he says, he says, I too am a man under authority, and I say to others, go. What he's, under, what he's stating there is he says, I understand. I, I derive my authority from the emperor. Like, I have authority derived to me. Like, I understand I, I am under authority, but I also speak authoritatively, and what I say goes, right? Well, the centurion understands Jesus to be the same, that he comes and he speaks with the authority as the authority of God Almighty, that he not only speaks and goes, well, I hope this happens, but he speaks authoritatively. And when he speaks, things happen. 
It's not this kind of vain, well, just wishful thinking and, and we'll see if it happens. No, he speaks and it happens because he has authority and he speaks with authority. So Jesus, or the centurion understands that Jesus' special authority from the Father and he was able to exert it here on earth. So what does Jesus say when he sees the faith of the centurion? Not bad for a Gentile, right? What does he say? Huh? Yeah. You guys are talking really well today. It's good. He's never seen such faith. Verse 10. Jesus heard this. He marveled, said to those who followed him, which are what? The Jews, right? Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He, he declares the centurion's faith to really be exemplary. He says, listen, this guy may be a Gentile, but you need to see his faith and learn from it. You need to get this. You need to take note. I, I haven't seen this type of faith in any among, anyone among Israel. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says some important stuff, and this would have been really hard for a Jew to hear. Really hard for a Jew to hear. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing, of teeth. Now, when he says that, that many will come from east and west, he's referring to people coming from outside of Israel. Gentiles coming. Many will come. They're not part of Israel. They're not Israelites. They're not Jews. There will be many Gentiles come, and where will they be? They will be reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. They will be saved. They will be a part of the kingdom. They will live forever with me in heaven. But he says what? But sons of the kingdom, sons of the kingdom will be thrown, or wow, wild sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. What he's saying here is he's saying there will be many who come who are non-Jews, who are Gentiles. They will be saved. And at the same time, there will be some who are Jews who will be cast into hell, into outer darkness. And there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because salvation is not based on ethnicity. Salvation is not based on who you are. Salvation is based on Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. It's by grace you're saved through faith, not by works. It's faith in Christ alone. Listen, if you're here today and you're counting on anything outside of faith in Christ to save you, if you're counting on being religious, if you're counting on your parents, if you're counting on your money, if you're counting on things you've done, things you've achieved, who you are in the community, your position in your business, your athleticism, your scholarships, that's not going to save you. Salvation is through Christ alone, by his grace alone. Through faith alone. And so the call of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that you're saved by faith in Christ. And the call for response is to repent and believe, to turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith, to trust him for salvation. Jesus says what in verse 13? He looks at the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Matthew is careful to say at that very moment. No mistake about it. It was the power of the spoken, authoritative word of Jesus Christ that brought healing in the servant's life. The third individual account we have of healing, verses 14 to 17, is Peter's mother-in-law. Really, it's almost mentioned here for Matthew is in passing. Jesus went into Peter's house, saw his mother-in-law lying sick in the fever. He touched her and fever left her and she got up and began to serve him. Oh, well, let's move on, right? Whoa, 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 back up. Matthew, what? What is that? Seriously? Well, we don't, we don't know a lot about what went on in this instance. We don't have a lot of details. We have, you can cross-reference it in Mark uh, 1, 29 to uh, 31, Luke 4, 38 to 39. We, we don't see any kind of plea here in Matthew. Matthew doesn't say that she cried out in faith, and we don't see that there either in the other Gospels. In, in Mark and Luke, we, we do learn that evidently the apostles made some type of appeal to him. But what we see is that, that Jesus sees her, and he just simply touches her. 
That's all he does. He just touches her, and she's healed. And not only is she healed, it's not like she started feeling better, and within a week she was able to do what she needed to do. No, he touches her, she gets up, and she's restored to full strength that she might serve him. And she's going about doing what she was doing. This is a significant thing. And fever, we shouldn't just pass right over. The fever in ancient days is very dangerous. It's not like today where you say, oh, you got a fever, here's some Tylenol or ibuprofen. No, in ancient days, a fever could very quickly lead to death. And so her lying there with a fever is a dangerous situation. He touches her. She's healed simply by his power. Now, why would this be an unlikely healing? Well, again, Matthew is writing contextually to Jews in the ancient Near East. And as he writes, a lot of times women are, are seen as secondary. But we see through the ministry of Christ that they are not secondary. That Christ compassionately loves male and female. He ministers to them and cares for them. We, show, we see Jesus caring for men and women in his ministry. Whether it's the woman at the well or, or here, Jesus shows compassion on women that was countercultural in his day. Now, what would be unlikely is that Matthew makes a point to point this out. Let me also, there was a, uh, an outcast of society that was healed. There was a Gentile that was healed. And now there's a woman that was healed. You need to understand, Jews, that what I'm declaring to you is that the Messiah has come, the Messiah is Christ, and the Messiah comes for all people, right? He comes for all. We come into verse 16, and we just see kind of a summary statement there in verse 16 that, that the evening brought about many who were oppressed by demons. We'll talk about that later in the healings there. Uh, oppressed by demons, he cast out the spirits of the word and he healed all who were sick. Kind of a summary of what Jesus is doing in that evening. And then verse 17 that we meditated on before the sermon where Matthew points out this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Remember, Matthew is careful to point this out. Why? Because he wants his hearers to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the foretold Messiah. He's diligent to show that he fulfilled prophecy. Now, this is a quote of Isaiah 53.4. If you read Isaiah 53.4 in the ESV, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows in the um, Holman Christian, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. Uh, in the first translation of the New American Standard uh, Version, says, it was, However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. What we see here, the point is this, is that those words can be translated as more of a, a spiritual illness or a physical illness. Matthew, when he looks and he quotes Isaiah, he is applying Isaiah 53 for literally to physical healing. He is saying that he, here he says that he came, the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses, he bore our diseases. Now Isaiah 53 Many of you are familiar with that. Isaiah 53 is largely and focused on the fact that Christ came, the suffering servant came, the Messiah came to bear our sins and to bring healing for us spiritually, to pay the price for us spiritually. Remember when we uh, looked at 1 Peter 2.24 at the beginning of the sermon? We talked about the healing, a spiritual healing that Peter talks about. He's quoting the same verse, okay? So he's understanding it, that, uh, the spiritual side. But here we see Matthew saying that the Messiah comes and he brings physical healing. And what we would understand, we look at context and Matthew pointing to Isaiah 53, a, a passage of scripture that the Jews cling to, that we cling to. We look to and say the Messiah comes to bring healing. He is the suffering servant who would pay the price for sin and bring healing to us in our spiritual condition. Matthew intentionally comes back to that and says he brings physical healing and then Isaiah 53 5 right away says he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed the very next verse goes right into that I, I would say Matthew is pointing to the fact that the Messiah that Jesus Christ brings physical healing as a sign and as a, a, an emphasis at, to show and declare his power to bring spiritual healing that we are not only physically healed in Christ, we are spiritually healed by his sacrifice. He was pierced for our transgressions. And Isaiah 53 is about 
that. Because the greatest need and the greatest problem we always have is not our physical ailments, but our spiritual lostness, our spiritual ailment. That we are sinners. We are sinners. We are children of wrath outside of Christ. Outside of Christ. We are dead to sin and in need of God's healing power, of God's power to make us alive again. Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 say, make us alive in Christ. That is what we are in need of. So we come at the beginning of Matthew 8 and 9. We come at the beginning of two chapters on healing. We come as those who struggle physically. We come as some who are fearful because of what lies ahead physically. We come as those who are weary and tired and hurting and tired of hurting. We come as those who are sinners in need of grace. I just want you to hear in the midst of all that as we come today and as we close our time in song, I want to remind you of the words we sang earlier. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. You want a truth you can cling to in sickness and in health? That's it. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. I I know, I know, sitting in this place right now, there are troubled souls. There are those who are troubled over sickness. There are those who are enduring and suffering. What truth can calm your troubled soul? God is good. Where is grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? The fears of tomorrow. The fears of how it ends. Who stands above the stormy trial? All the storms that rage. Who stands above them all? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh and to the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray.